Good morning, church family. Really enjoy uh, singing through that song. It's a it's a great reminder of God's grace and mercy, which is, is something I think has been on display as we've been reading through Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. Just those reminders, one of just God's great provision that He would even work in the in the hearts and minds of a of an unbelieving ruler to let God's people go and do what He had called them to do, but also there's sweet little reminders in there of, of God not desiring to bring wrath, but he's abounding in steadfast love. And we know that he offers his, his grace and mercy even though we don't deserve it. And that's what we get to talk about this morning and, and every morning when we meet together. And specifically this morning, I would uh, turn your attention to uh, the book of Second Timothy as we have another opportunity to open his word And specifically, our passage this morning that we're going to be considering is chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Although when we read the text, we're going to read a little bit farther so you get the full thrust of the passage. So if you would go ahead and turn there as we prepare to read this morning. But, But as we've gotten farther into the year. Uh, It amazes me every single day that we're in 2024, and I I was thinking back to an event that occurred now uh, about two years ago. In 2022, uh, I decided that I wanted to run a race here in the Treasure Valley, and uh, I recognized that it was going to be the hardest race I had ever run before, and so for once, I decided I needed to give myself ample time to prepare for this race. Uh, Specifically, I I told myself I need at least four months, four months to prepare uh, so that I don't just fall flat on my face uh, when I actually get to this event. So uh, at Christmas 2021, my wife graciously, she bought me a book about how to prepare for the upcoming race, what to expect, what habits you need to form, what information you need to know, what you need to not do. And so then with that, uh, that in my possession, I was able to, in January of 2022, start preparing for this race. But what I quickly realized was what preparation for this race looked like on paper was very different than what it is in real life. It's very different. I quickly began to realize as I read through this book, there was a lot I had to change about the habits in my life if I wanted to be successful. First, my nutrition needed to change. Gone were going to be the days of apple fritters, of chips, and of flaming Hot Cheetos. Those were gone. I knew that I needed to change my, my sleeping patterns. I wanted to do all my training in the morning, so I had to start going to bed earlier so I could get up early before any other sane person was awake. And I just recognized, too, that that my whole weekly schedule needed to change. All of a sudden, I had 15 hours of training that I needed to fit somewhere into the week. And so I needed to prioritize that. Training was really hard. Uh, And at times, it was incredibly discouraging And one of the most helpful pieces of information that came up in that book that I was reading about preparing for this race was that I needed to remind myself of why I was doing this. 
I needed to rehearse that over and over and over again so that I would not give up. I would not tire of working hard every single day. And so I needed to give myself a couple things to remember. I, I needed to remember, first and foremost, I was training just so I could finish the race. That was goal number one. Just, I just want to finish. I don't care how long it takes. I want to cross the finish line. Okay, then goal number two was, okay, if, if we're assuming I finish, I have a time in which I, I would like to finish. Those are, those are some high lofty aspirations because I wasn't sure I was just going to finish. And then I was also training because I wanted to prove to myself that I could overcome what I perceived to be physical limitations that I had. I'd always told myself I couldn't do something like this. and I wanted to prove myself wrong. And then, oddly enough, perhaps the most helpful thing I remained myself, and maybe some of you who love food as much as I do could relate to this, I had to remind myself that as soon as the race was done, I was going to have the most epic of cheat meals ever. Like all of those things, though, that apple fritter, that was, that was first on the docket to come back as soon as the race was done. I needed to remind myself of those things often and always. And eventually it was by the grace of God and these reminders that I, I stayed motivated and I trained for four months and I finished that race. This morning, as we prepare to look forward and consider the words of the Apostle Paul in, in our passage today, we actually have to first look back a few verses. What we previously learned earlier on in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is the way in which Paul called Timothy, as well as every single genuine believer, to faithfulness and steadfastness. And he did so by giving three images, right? He gave us the image of, of how we ought to suffer as a good soldier, to compete according to the rules like a disciplined athlete, and to remain faithful like a hardworking farmer. And what we're going to see this morning in the three verses that we're going to consider, they're actually in direct connection to those three images that Paul has just previously given to his audience. It's as we look back at that passage, we see the what that the believer is called to, that steadfastness, that faithfulness. And this morning, as we look forward, we're going to see that Paul provides us with the how behind that what. How do we remain steadfast? How do we remain faithful? Because he shares with Timothy and all of us here today that there are key truths that have to remain at the forefront of our mind at all times. That's how we remain faithful. That is how we remain steadfast to the end. That's how we accomplish that assigned task. This is, of course, crucial. I mean, remember, think through those things that I had to constantly remind myself of, of when I was training, and that was for four months. How much more important is, the, is what the believer sets their minds upon if they desire to remain faithful for a lifetime? That is of much greater importance and consequence. What we see this morning in our text is that Paul provides Timothy and us 
with the motivation we need. And he does so in the form of three gospel remembrances or reminders that need to be on our minds often and always. The things that every single believer needs to remember and rehearse so they can remain faithful. And those three remembrances this morning is that the believer must remember first and foremost the source of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and then ultimately the outcome of the gospel. So read with me now 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead of the seed of David, according to my gospel, for which I endure hardship even to chains as a criminal. But the word of God has not been chained. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a trustworthy saying, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we will deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts this morning. God, you are are so good. We thank you for the task that you have set before the hearts and minds and hands of every single believer. God, you have so very clearly called us to faithfulness, not only if we're ministry leaders, but God, just as faithful believers, we are called to stay faithful and steadfast all of our days. God, we thank you. Not only do you give us that call, but you equip us to accomplish that work. God, as we strive to do that in your power, we thank you for these reminders that you give us in the gospel today. I pray that in here we would be encouraged, that we would be convicted and challenged to remain faithful to you. Amen. So first this morning, what we're going to see in in verse 8 is going to be that we are reminded we have to remember first the source of the gospel. That is of primary importance. Now, I have to prepare you, as, as we work through this passage, there's a reason today that we're only going to look at three verses. And that is because this section is so theologically rich, and it is so full of practical implica- or application for the life of every single believer. There's so much that we're able to draw from this text And what I want you to notice is as we wade through this theologically rich passage, that there are going to be certain things that Paul does, whether it's changing the order of a word, sharing the or the specific words that he uses. He's going to do specific things to draw our attention to points in the text. Additionally, we have to remember that this passage, what it's coming right off the heels of. Remember, we we already talked the three images that Paul has just mentioned. So we have to remember that this passage now is coming right off the heels of that call to remain faithful to the gospel. And so it's with this in mind 
this call to be a faithful herald of the gospel that Paul begins. He first starts just by giving us the very definition of the gospel that Timothy and we must remind ourselves of. And he starts this very clearly by simply calling Timothy to remember. Remember, that's the very first thing. And that's the only imperative that we will see in this passage this morning, that call to remember. And and this remember here is written by the apostle as a present imperative, which means this is calling the, the audience to a constant or an ongoing, a habitual action that they are to take up and on often and always. And though, as I mentioned, this is the only imperative, and, and here it's clearly connected to verse 8, I would like to argue this morning that that same imperative could very easily be applied to verses 9 and 10 as well. But, but we'll get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll, we'll get there later. So the call here in verse 8 is simple. Remembrance. Remember. And, and specifically... Paul is calling for remembrance of what he speaks of as my gospel. Remember my gospel. Now stop with me for a moment and consider what does the Apostle Paul mean when he speaks of my gospel? What is it? What is he talking about? And this is a a phrase that we may become very familiar with, so we may not often consider this. But it's worth asking, is Paul talking about some some different message? Why does he speak about it in this way? Is he teaching something that's different than the word of God? Well, no, we know that's not the case, right? We we know that Paul is the same one who wrote Galatians chapter one, verses six to seven to the struggling Galatians, where he says to them, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of God. Okay, so so this is not a different gospel message. Paul makes that very clear. He doesn't believe that there is another gospel message. He says there are just those that try and distort the one true gospel message. But what Paul is speaking about is this message that he has been proclaiming and he continues to proclaim even now while he's in prison. This is the same message that he wants Timothy and every single faithful believer to carry on. This is the good deposit that's talked about in 2 Timothy 1.14. Right? This is that message that is, that is passed on from, from men to other faithful men who could then go out and teach others in 2 Timothy 2.2. And Paul actually identifies this as the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which Paul tells us he has been entrusted with. It's the remembrance of this, this gospel message that Paul knows will motivate young Timothy to faithfulness. What we're going to see in verses 8, 9, and 10 is that there's going to be focuses on different aspects of the gospel that need to be remembered often and always. And in verse 8, as I mentioned previously, that aspect that Paul really is going to camp on is the source of the gospel. 
which is readily seen in him saying, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead of the seed of David. Now, as we, as we work through this Im- imperative here, right, this call to remember, we're going to go through just a few words at a time. What we're going to notice first is the way in which Paul is going to use the order of his words to grab our attention and to slow us down a little bit. Notice for a moment that he says, Jesus Christ. Now, this may seem like a little minute detail, something that we're going to fly by and not pay much attention to. But we have to realize this should grab our attention because all throughout 2 Timothy, Paul uses the ordering Christ Jesus. The opposite, right? This is the only occasion in 2 Timothy where Paul, for some reason, says Jesus Christ. And so the question is, why? Now, I don't want to speculate too heavily upon this, but, but one commentator suggests that, that this change may be to highlight a, a, shimp, a shift in emphasis here, suggesting that the ordering of Christ Jesus might have placed the emphasis more so on Jesus' position as the Messiah or the Christ, whereas the reverse, Jesus Christ emphasized perhaps his personhood. Whether or not that is Paul's intention, what I do think this accomplishes is simply causing us to pause and slow down, especially preparing us for what Paul is going to say afterwards. So whether or not this commentator is correct, it does what it is intending to do by causing us to slow, to prepare ourselves to understand and listen to the words that are coming. That next statement, right? Jesus Christ, he is risen from the dead of the seed of David. These two statements here, risen from the dead and of the seed of David, these are also written in a way to catch our attention. Paul's going to do a lot in this passage to get us to slow down and consider what he's saying. Right, think for a moment, these, these two statements first, right? Christ is risen from the dead. And that he is the seed or the descendant of David. There's this contrast of ascend and descend, once again catching our attention, causing us to pause. Paul wants Timothy to remember very clearly what it is that the great author of the gospel has accomplished. He highlights here first the resurrection, which every believer needs to know is of incredible significance. Isn't this what Paul argues for in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? He takes time in verses 3 and 4 and 17 through 19 specifically to speak about this importance. He actually says this is of first importance because without it, what does he say about the whole of the Christian faith? It's in vain. Because we're still in our sins, right? We're to be pitied because of the state we would still be in if Christ did not indeed rise from the dead. So here in verse 8, Paul reminds us, Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. In fact, 
It's so cool to see the way he talks about Jesus being risen from the dead. He uses the perfect tense, which which means that the resurrection is something that happened in the past and has continuing importance today. Right. He rose from the grave then and he is still alive today. He rose on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the father where he is alive today. Right, the source of the gospel, we, we proclaim he is not dead. He is alive. That is what makes the gospel message so astonishing. Any man could come and live and die, but only Christ could come, live, die, and rise again. This emphasis by Paul on the, this very present reality of a resurrected Savior is also of importance to this passage because it helps the believer to look forward. He emphasizes here that, that Christ being risen from the dead is the reason that every believer has, has a hope that they too someday will rise from the dead and be with Christ for eternity. Additionally, Paul's focus here is not just on the fact that Christ rose from the dead, but in that second statement that Jesus is the descendant. He is the offspring, the seed of David, of King David himself. And I think when, when Paul is doing this, his focus, his attention seems to really be twofold. First, he's, he's simply emphasizing the fulfillment of promise. When he talks about Jesus being of the seed of David, he's simply emphasizing what God said he would do in 2 Samuel. He did. Jesus came from this lineage. The Messiah came from this lineage as it had been promised so long ago. God kept his word. He fulfilled this promise. But second, I, I do think it also accomplishes the task of, of emphasizing Jesus's humanity. Specifically and, and importantly for, for somebody like Timothy, who is in the midst of suffering and trials. Paul emphasizes Jesus's humanity, which reminds him that we have a perfect, merciful and sympathetic high priest, one who came to earth as truly God and truly man, and he was tempted in every single way. Yet what's that key difference there? He was without sin. How much of an encouragement and a motivation would that have been to Timothy to think about that as he is standing in the midst of persecution and being called by Paul to remain faithful? How encouraging ought that to be for each of us today? To know we have a loving and gracious, merciful Savior who can sympathize with us. What we see through this verse is that the believer must remember and, and thus be motivated to faithfulness by the perfect and divine source of the gospel. If we were to think back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, we would see Paul's reminder where he says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. What is it that keeps a soldier, 
laser focused. Right? Even when they're, they're in the midst of the battlefield, even when they're facing discouraging times and distractions all around them. What keeps them motivated is that, that greater than their desire to do their own will is the very desire to please the one who has enlisted them into service. This is the same reason that the genuine believer must be motivated to faithfulness. Because we know, we know the one who has called us to service. We know the one who has penned our marching orders. We know this full well. You know, they they say that, that just about every illustration falls short at one point or another. And I wouldn't say that in this case, but I would say that Paul further expands on that illustration of a soldier here in verse 8. Because what he reminds us of is not only do we know the one who called us to service, who gave us our marching orders, but we also know that that same commanding officer loved us so much he was willing to come and die on our behalf. That he was willing to come and die for since he himself did not commit. So that we might live with him. For eternity. If that's not something worth being motivated about, I don't know what is. Consider for a moment if you desire to please the Lord greater even than, than the difficulties you experience, than the trials that you face, you desire to serve the Lord even more than that opposition that may face you. First, this morning, we, we see, as Paul encourages Timothy and, and us, by extension, to be faithful, he does so by reminding us of the source of the gospel. We see, secondly, in, in verse 9, we are called to remember the power of the gospel. First, the source, and now the power. And what we're going to see is there's a literary format taking place here that's quite common to the writings of Paul. And if we wanted to see this in action, we could look back at, at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Because what Paul will do is he, he identifies or defines the message of the gospel and then emphasizes it by giving an explanation or meaning for his present state of suffering or trial. And in Paul's explanation, what we're going to see here is that he actually gives us further insight into the nature of his suffering. And I know we, we understand from our previous times being in this book, we know Paul's in prison. We know that he's looking forward to the fact that he, he's going to die. He has this at the forefront of his mind, but, but what we might not always consider is the situation surrounding what brought him to be imprisoned. And Paul uses such strong language here that there is no way we can miss the conditions surrounding his imprisonment. Now, our translation here, which says the fact that he is, yes, bound in chains as a criminal, it doesn't do justice to what's being said. Now, what, what really should be said here, the language Paul is using is, talking about himself as being seen as a serious criminal. He is seen by those who have taken him 
as one who is charged by, as, a, as a good for nothing, somebody who has done gross misdeeds, serious crimes, which would likely lead to them justifying treating him like a violent criminal, possibly even to the point of torture. In fact, this language that he uses is so intense that it's only used in one other book of the entire New Testament. And that's in the Gospel of Luke, where Luke uses it multiple times to describe the thieves that were being crucified on the cross alongside Christ. See, it's, it's explaining those truly heinous thieves in Luke 23, 32, and 39 He's explaining what those thieves who, who knew by their own admission that they deserved to be there, they desired, or they didn't desire, but they deserved and were worthy of the judgment they were to face. Yet Paul, just as Jesus was willing to suffer like and alongside the most heinous of criminals, though he himself was not guilty of grievous crimes of gross misdeeds. But why? Why was Paul willing to suffer such a fate? Consider the following statements made by the Apostle Paul. But the word of God has not been chained. The word of God has not been chained. Though Paul himself has been chained as a criminal, as a good for nothing, he has great hope and reason to persevere because he knows the gospel cannot be bound. That's what motivates him. That's what keeps him going. So what exactly is the point that Paul is making here? You could slice this a couple different ways. Is he saying in saying that the gospel is not chained and that the gospel is not bound, is he referring to the fact that he has confidence that the gospel will continue to be proclaimed by, by Timothy in his absence? Maybe. In saying that the gospel is not chained, is he showing confidence that he has that the church will continue to grow and expand after he's gone? Maybe. Or is he saying when he says the gospel cannot be chained and is not chained, is he suggesting that the gospel is still going forth even while he's in prison and those around him are hearing the gospel? Well, I would like to say yes, yes, and yes. All of the above is what Paul is hoping in and confident of in this situation. His point is that the word is not chained. A statement here written in this intensive perfect, meaning that there's an emphasis here on, on the ongoing freedom of the gospel. The gospel goes out as the Lord wills. Uh, commentator William Mount says this in a great way that I, I just so appreciate. And he reminds us they can bind the messenger, but they cannot bind the message. Simple as that. Because of its source, it's powerful. It cannot be bound. It cannot be chained. And it will 
go forth. Back in the 1660s, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, was arrested for preaching the gospel. And upon being arrested, he was imprisoned in Bedford, England. And I think each and every one of us could agree that, that to be imprisoned for your faith, to be in shackles because of your proclamation of the gospel, that could very quickly be frightening or even discouraging. Listen to the way that, that Bunyan responded to his imprisonment. It's recorded that multiple times a day, he would stand up and he would look at the windows out of his cell. He couldn't see anything on the other side of those windows but the wall of the prison. And so he got up because he knew that by speaking in that direction, his voice would go out and he would stand there every day and faithfully proclaim the gospel. He didn't necessarily know who would be there hearing it, but he knew that the gospel message was going forth. And what it is, is amazing about this and later on recorded is that because of his faithful proclamation, people on the other side of the prison wall were hearing him, believers and unbelievers. They were hearing the gospel every single day. The gospel was going forth to hundreds of people just because this man in a jail cell was willing to stand up and preach. He was willing to preach the message of the gospel, and many came to hear it. Paul and, and John Bunyan were both willing to suffer the harshest of treatment. They were willing to suffer the greatest of evils because they had faith that the gospel is not chained. They had confidence in that. Friends, we have to understand what they did. We need to know and wholeheartedly believe that while we're here on this earth. Yes, we know that, that God has placed us under the, the subjugation and authority of, of the rulers of this world. But you know what? Even if we experience persecution from those who are over us, we can draw confidence from the fact that the word of God is not bound. That despite oppression and persecution, the gospel will go forth. And that should give us great confidence and great hope. Second, we've seen that the believer ought to be encouraged as they strive for faithfulness in the Christian life because of the power of the gospel. Knowing that even if we are someday bound as the worst of criminals, the word of God can never be bound. It can never be silenced and it can never be snuffed out. Third and finally this morning, I want us to consider in verse 10, we're reminded that we must remember the outcome of the gospel. We must remember the outcome of the gospel. Paul begins this section by saying, For this reason I endure all things. Now, hearing this should lead us naturally to the question, For what reason? What reason is Paul willing to endure all things? 
Though now, just as has happened multiple times through this passage, we're momentarily pointed backwards. And he he calls us to, to step back for a moment and think about the second point that we've just addressed today. Paul is suggesting, and, and not even suggesting, clearly stating that one of the reasons for his steadfastness in ministry is, again, that the gospel is unchained, unbound, unhindered by anything, even his imprisonment. And however, we, we do see here much of Paul's motivation comes from his confidence in the unbound gospel. We also see motivation encouragement and urgency actually comes to Paul as he speaks by the ultimate outcome of that unbound gospel. Yet, prior to arriving at that ultimate outcome, Paul states that it is the power of the great unbound gospel giving him the ability to endure all things for the sake of the elect. Now, as we continue here, this this brings up two questions that we have to consider side by side, which is what is Paul enduring and who are the elect? What's Paul addressing here? As Paul uses this language, we must once again realize he does so potentially having more than one meaning in mind. And he does so with with the purpose of encouraging Timothy and every single believer to endure. Now, in the context here, our best understanding of enduring is that he is called to patient steadfastness, which does not flee even in the time of trouble. That is what he means by enduring all things. And I, I think this is certainly most fitting considering the surrounding circumstances that the Apostle Paul is faced with. Paul is showing in this instance that he, as should Timothy and every single believer, he is willing to endure anything because of the great power of the gospel and what it ultimately accomplishes. Paul adds further depth to the statement by expanding and explaining again, who is he enduring for? Certainly we know First and foremost, Paul is enduring for the Lord and for the glory of God, right? This is the man who, under the inspiration of the Spirit, penned 1 Corinthians 10.31, right? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we know that that is of first importance in Paul's heart and mind. But additionally, Paul sharing who he suffers for, endures for as one of the vilest of criminals, he simply says, for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So as I mentioned, we have to ask, who are the elect in this situation? What is being spoken of? Some might argue a more eschatological view of the elect here. They would say that that when Paul is talking about the elect, he's saying that he needs to continue enduring as a good example for the existing saints such that he would not cause them to stumble, that he would not be a hindrance 
to them, but they would remain faithful all the way to the end. While others would argue that Paul is stating that he endures all these things so that he can continue proclaiming the gospel and that those who have been chosen, the elect, yet have not come to saving faith yet, would one day believe the gospel and trust in Christ as both Savior and Lord. I'll say that each of these views comes with their own set of persuasive arguments. Right, on the one hand, with you, if you see the more eschatological view, it seems to fit more with the surrounding context because Paul is constantly pointing forward, calling to faithfulness to the end of your days. He's focusing on that steadfastness to the very end. But on the other hand, the second argument, which is more evangelistic in nature, it seems to fit better with the language of the text. Because Paul seems to be speaking of salvation as something not yet obtained. So then, where do we land? More eschatological in our focus or more evangelistic? Just like before, I'm going to say yes and yes. Both. Absolutely, wholeheartedly, it is both. I don't think there's a necessity just to focus on one or the other at this juncture. I don't think Paul makes us do that. I think both are absolutely applicable to the message that Paul has given. Right? With that eschatological view, Paul and Timothy and we must be willing to endure hardships, endure all things so that we might be a bright, shining example to fellow believers that we might encourage others to remain faithful every single day of their lives. We need to live as examples for other members that are elect. And second, with regard to that more evangelistic focus, Paul and Timothy were, and we must be, willing to endure all things so that unchained gospel can continue to go forth. And those elect who have not yet come to saving faith can hear the gospel and come to saving faith. And reflecting on this passage, uh, John MacArthur in his commentary on 2 Timothy, he spends a lot of time speaking about how God's word, his gospel, just as clearly necessitates faith for salvation as the fact that salvation is a result of God's sovereign grace. There's a beautiful tension that they are meant to be held hand in hand with one another, never forsaking one for the other. In fact, he has a a very pointed quote where he says, Despite the Lord's sovereign calling of men to himself, he calls those who belong to him to extend his calling to those who have not heard and heeded it. Yes, God is sovereignly in control of the elect and the gospel, but he still calls us to go and proclaim that message so that those who will one day come to believe can hear the good news of the gospel. Though this quote by MacArthur is more geared towards providing believers with an urgency in evangelism, he makes something incredibly clear. And that is the fact that that though God is sovereignly in control of every single life, he's sovereignly in control of every single soul, there's still work that he calls us to do. 
And we can't punt on that responsibility. He still calls us to go and proclaim the gospel. He still calls us to both proclaim the gospel and then also to live an exemplary life of faithfulness, to encourage and to spur on other believers. Do we believe this? Brothers and sisters, has this truth so permeated our souls that it is being worked out in our actions in everyday life? Is this something we truly believe and live out? We, like Paul, must be motivated, yes, by that unchained, that unbound nature of the very gospel, but also by the end result of that gospel. Namely, the fact that that there will be saints experiencing eternal glory with Christ Jesus. We need to live today with the end in mind. We need to live today with the end in mind. We, as Paul and Timothy, we must be willing to endure all things that our example helps the yet-to-believe elect come to faith and it helps the current saints be encouraged and challenged. Third, we've seen this morning, we have to remember the outcome of the gospel. This morning, the Apostle Paul has presented Timothy and us with these three gospel remembrances, these three key gospel remembrances, which are crucial. They are so crucial. If we desire to remain faithful in our pursuit of the Lord, if we are to remain faithful till our dying breath, we first saw that we need to remember the source of the gospel, then the power of the gospel, and finally the outcome of the gospel. Friends, these, these key truths have been foundational to Christian faithfulness for generations, and nothing has changed. They still are as applicable today as they were when they were first penned. Francis Howard Rose uh, is somebody that many of us may not be familiar with. For much of his life, he was an educator, uh, but in the latter days of his life, he was a missionary to the Philippines, uh, and mostly so during World War II. And there was a point at which Japan invaded the Philippines and Rose and 10 other missionaries were martyred for their faith on December 20th. But before being martyred, Rose penned a beautiful hymn, popularly called today the Martyr's Hymn. And I believe it very well encapsulates the thrust of our message this morning. So just, just listen for me with a moment this moment to, to the very words of Francis Howard Rose. He says this, All human progress up to God has stained the stairs of time with blood. For every gain from Christendom is bought by someone's martyrdom. For us he poured the crimson cup and bade us take and drink it up. Himself he poured to set us free. Help us, O Christ, to drink with thee. 
Ten thousand saints come thronging home from lion's den and catacomb. The fire and sword and beasts defied. For Christ the King, they gladly died. With eye of faith we see today that cross-led column wind its way. Up life's repeated Calvary, we rise, O Christ, to follow thee. The word of God speaks clearly about the brevity of our life. Right? We're reminded of this in James 4, 14, when it's addressing those who are making extensive plans for the days and weeks and years to come. They're reminded our life is like a vapor that appears and then in an instant vanishes away. The question we need to walk away with this morning is how do I ensure that for this, this brief amount of time, I remain faithful until the Lord calls me home. And the simple answer we've seen is that we have to remember and be convinced of the gospel message. We must remember it and think of it often. That source of the gospel, friends, we need to be encouraged. We have to be exhorted to pursue excellence, knowing full well who is the great author and finisher of our faith. The promised Messiah, the one who is of the line of David, who lived a life without sin, being tempted in every way, yet not giving in. The one who not only died, but he rose from the grave on the third day. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is alive today, interceding on our behalf. We have to remember that we live for and serve the one true living God. And in remembering the power of the gospel, we must be encouraged knowing that no one, no man, no demon, not Satan himself can stand in the way of God's gospel message. It is not chained. It cannot be chained. It will never be chained. It goes forth as God wills. And we need to be reminded and encouraged of that every day. We need to remember that outcome of the gospel. We need to always live in light of eternity. We need to be willing to endure persecution, even if it comes from family, even if it comes from friends, from coworkers, from employers, from the government, for the sake of the gospel. Because, friends, we're concerned with something of eternal significance. We need not worry ourselves with these temporal things. May we go from here today. May we be equipped with these tools that God has given us. And may we be encouraged such that we might, by by the grace and power of God, pursue a life of faithfulness and one day be with our Lord in eternal glory.